Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. The Ajax armoured vehicle is central to a new master plan for the army, but it's already six years late and has been plagued with problems, including injuring some troops. But the Defence Secretary says it's now turned a corner. I inherited a trouble programme. I was determined I'm going to put this right, but they're starting to roll them out, so it won't be long. And get through these trials, I think you'll find pretty quickly we'll find them into the units at a larger scale and we'll be back on track. We'll explain why this has been such a headache for the army and a senior MP tells us how soldiers involved in it all can make things better for the future. Also this week, China produces a peace plan for the Ukraine war, but what outcome does it want? And why? Professor Michael Clark will help guide us through that. And the RAF's links to Gulf states as we talk to typhoon pilots about keeping the World Cup in Qatar safe. We are armed and we are ready in the air for any kind of unforeseen circumstance. But more importantly, we're a visible sign to secure what was an amazing event. Mike Clark, hi, how are you doing? Doing well. A little bit of word association to start with today, a little bit of a game. If I said to you Ajax, what pops into your head? I'm showing my age now. Ajax to me is one of the heroes of the Trojan War, one of the Greek Mm -hmm. heroes. And it's also a a cleaner from the 1950s and 60s. Ajax, the foaming cleanser, gets rid of stains without a whiz. Um, I remember that too. You remember um, that, yeah. You'll stop yeah, paying the elbow tax when you use Ajax. But what if I put Ajax and procurement together? Well, that I, when I think procurement, I think of the oldest profession in the world. And in a way, you know, MOD procurement feels as if it's been going on since the beginning of time. So I think, you know, Ajax and procurement seems to mean something that's a bit of a mess, to be honest. Yeah, indeed. Ajax is not a happy story, is it? Um, This infantry fighting vehicle should have been in service in 2017. It's been plagued with technical problems, including the pretty essential capability to fire on the move. Then, in tests, soldiers were injured by noise and vibration, putting the whole programme on hold and even raising the possibility it could be scrapped altogether. But now the Defence Secretary says it's turned a corner. Better cushions and ear defence are the solution to noise and vibration. The threat of cancellation seems to be lifted. Uh, Mike, how big a relief will that be to the army? Well, it will be if they can get it right. I mean, there's some scepticism as to whether they have got it right, but these vehicles are really important, or at least the vehicle to fulfill this role is very important, because if they're going to create these strike brigades, Challenger 3, Boxer and Ajax are the three vehicles that will be the essence of a strike brigade. But they're a long way away from uh, from reality. And here we are, you know, with a major war in Europe and thinking about the need to really make our forces capable of mobilization. And there's an, a massive hole in the mm. in the essence of what the army needs to go forward. Indeed, Ajax is probably still at least two years away from coming into service. And now soldiers who've been involved with Ajax are being offered a chance to have their say to MPs about what's gone wrong and how it's affected them. The Conservative MP and former Army Reservist Marc Francois wants them to write in for a new investigation he's leading for the Commons Defence Committee. It's about the systems for buying all British military equipment, but he told me that the biggest driver has been frustration over Ajax. It's fundamental to the Army's future concept of warfighting. And one of the reasons that I and other members of the committee have been asking so many questions for so long is because it's now running some six years late. We've spent over £4 billion of British taxpayers' money. 
we still don't have a single vehicle in frontline service and we still don't know when it's going to enter frontline service so unfortunately many of these critical questions remain unanswered but obviously the situation in ukraine adds a new sense of urgency to this whole issue and what has that delay meant to the army Well, it's meant that it's had to run on vehicles, which in some cases are 50 years old. The current scimitar, which performs that reconnaissance role, some of those entered service in the early 1970s. I mean, I remember us having scimitar when, as you kindly pointed out, I was a TA infantry officer, you know, in the 80s. So these vehicles are old, they're tired. And there's a whole wider issue about the obsolescence of the Army's armoured fighting vehicle fleet. And yet the Defence Secretary seems confident they've dealt with the noise and vibration issues, but those aren't the only problems Ajax has had. What else still needs to be solved? Well, the MOD still won't tell us how expensive the ammunition is because it's rumoured to be a four-figure sum, even for one armoured piercing round. You know, once senior NCO said to me once, so if they fire the weapon for real, they'll bankrupt the Treasury. And also the concept for Ajax is that it's at the heart of the whole kind of digital battlefield integrated concept. But that will rely on a new system called Morpheus. And Morpheus is, guess what, years late. So even if they brought Ajax into service tomorrow... They can only do it with Bowman, which will soon be obsolescent. And the replacement, Morpheus, the Brian, is nowhere near ready. Okay, so assuming the issues do get resolved, can you explain a little bit more about what the Ajax role will be and how good a vehicle it is for it? It's essentially an armoured reconnaissance vehicle. It's meant to be highly digitised with sensors that allow it to detect enemy vehicles at long range and then to communicate that to other units across the army. But it weighs up to 43 tonnes with a full armour package. I mean, that's more than a Sherman tank. I once described it as about as stealthy as a Ford Transit full of spanners. And, you know, a reconnaissance vehicle should be unobtrusive. That's not really Ajax. So um, it's late. You don't think it's the right tool for the job. What does that mean for men and women serving in the army? As ever, the army may have to make the most of it. I mean, we AS-90 is obsolescent and we've, we're giving 30 to the Ukrainians and hopefully they will, they will put them to good use. Challenger 2 is showing its age, but the new Challenger 3 won't be available till about 2027, 28. So part of the problem is the British Army haven't brought a new major armoured fighting vehicle into service for over 20 years. So you've now got a massive block obsolescence problem in the army. And given the long wait that soldiers have had to deal with, does that mean they're having to work harder, they're unable to do their jobs properly? or are even- Well, yes, you know, you know if you, because if you're trying to keep a 50-year-old vehicle running, you don't need a, you know, an advanced degree in mechanical engineering to know that that can sometimes be a difficult thing to do. I mean, the Defence Committee visited Salisbury Plain a couple of years ago and we talked to some senior NCOs about Warrior. They said Warrior's a great old war horse, but the problem was they kept breaking down on exercise. I said at the committee recently, and I wasn't saying anything that the, the Russians don't already know. If we crashed three armoured division 
out of barracks at 5.30 in the morning. Half of that division wouldn't even get out of the tank park. And what do these soldiers say to you? Are they really frustrated? How do they explain the situation? When you speak, well, <laughs> when you speak to people off the record, which you know, I and other committee members do, yes, of course they are. Of course they are. You know, the job of the armed forces is to save lives by deterring war, by convincing any potential aggressor. There's no point starting it because you can't win. But you can only do that if you've got very well-trained troops, which fortunately in the British Army we still have, although not enough of them, I would argue. But you also need absolutely top-line equipment that is going to work as advertised when you turn the key. And we haven't got enough of that in the British Army. You are chairing a new inquiry into the procurement problems that have been highlighted by things like Ajax. What are you looking for exactly? Yes, the Defence Committee are so frustrated now with all of these endless procurement problems and cost overruns and delays. We've established a special subcommittee to conduct an inquiry into what's wrong with our procurement system, specifically to look at DNS, defence equipment and support. As part of that, we've issued a call for evidence and the deadline for which is the 31st of March, people can go onto the committee's website, they can submit written evidence, and I would encourage anyone in the armed forces or anyone in procurement or industry that wants to submit any evidence about any aspect of what's wrong with our procurement system, obviously including Ajax to do that. They have to put their name on it so we can validate that, but if necessary, when we produce the report, we can keep that information confidential. We won't necessarily publish the whole thing with their name on it. So people can submit, in effect, evidence confidentially. And we'd really like to hear from members of the armed forces and people who work in procurement who can tell us what's really going wrong from the inside. We would greatly value that information if people are prepared to provide it. So what kind of experiences are you looking for exactly? Well, you know, anyone that's been involved, you know, someone that's been involved in the trials programme, you know, if they could tell us what they thought was wrong with the vehicle or why things had gone wrong, that would be extremely valuable. But, you know, anyone that's worked on any other procurement programmes, so they could be air procurement programmes, they could be naval procurement programmes, it's not exclusively army, but I think it's probably not giving away, you know, the Trident codes here to say that we're likely to look very closely at the Ajax programme as an example of something that, you know, that went horribly wrong. So the Defence Secretary seems determined to, to fix the problems with Ajax. He believes the, the programme has turned a corner. Do you buy that? Are you reassured? So if they genuinely fix the vehicle, well, let's see. And let's see what it's like when it enters service. But the first thing to tell us is when it's actually going to enter service. How long does it take to build a tank? Um, it's like waiting for Godot. Mark Francois, good to speak to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Very kind of you. And if you want to submit evidence on Ajax or any other military procurement, take a look at this story on our website, our news website, forces.net. It has a link to where you can write in to the MPs involved. This is Zidrev. It's 4,000 miles from Beijing to Kyiv. On the face of it, China doesn't really have a direct stake in the Ukraine war. 
But as a global superpower, it has at least an interest in everything. Now it's produced a 12-point peace plan for the conflict. The key principles include respecting the sovereignty of all countries, ceasing hostilities and abandoning the Cold War mentality. None of this sounds particularly groundbreaking, but President Zelensky says he wants to meet China's leader, Xi Jinping, to talk about it. The West, though, does not see this as an impartial plan. The US has doubled down on claims China might supply weapons to Russia and is now privately sounding out allies about possible sanctions on Beijing. So what outcome does China want from the war in Ukraine? And why? Well, Mike's still here, and also with us is Dr. Zeno Leone, who teaches courses on China to senior military officers at the Joint Services and Staff College. Uh, Dr. Leone, thank you very much for your time. Why has China produced this peace plan? Well, I think it has. So, this plan has contains very little in terms of new information that we didn't know looking back at China's behavior with regard to the war in Ukraine over the last year. In my opinion, this is, as somebody described it, a charm offensive, mostly aimed at European countries. And the reason is that China sees the United States and to an extent more broadly the West as its main geopolitical challenge. But China needs to keep this marriage of convenience going, especially with the U.S., and is not ready to de-westernize its, its economy as it would like to. So this peace plan, I think, is to show European partners that at the end of the day, China is a responsible great power. And if I may, I think the media tend to overemphasize the possibilities, the power, the, the role that China can have in this crisis. We like to talk about China nowadays. But actually, I suspect that China doesn't have the power to stop hostilities, unfortunately. Mm. So what is the Chinese view of the war in Ukraine? Does it see it as a potentially good or, or bad for its interests? Well, I think China has been very ambiguous over the last year. But in the early days of the war, it was very clear that they were disappointed. I'm pretty sure that when Xi Jinping and uh, other Chinese authorities contacted Putin and Russian government more in general, they made this very clear, politely, but very clear. But there is not much they can do to stop Putin in the sense that Ukraine is high stakes for Putin and for China, Ukraine is not high stakes. Of course, China would welcome very much economic stability. Uh, and so the end of hostilities. On the other hand, China is facing a contradiction because on the one hand, they uh, advocate for the respect of sovereignty of other countries. And so in this case, the sovereignty of Ukraine. On the other hand, they do not want to interfere in other countries' political affairs. And so they can only gently interfere uh, with Russia, at least officially. And uh, Mike, what is your assessment? Yes, you know, this war is not doing China any good, and it is a real dilemma for it, as Dr. Leone says. I'm sure he's absolutely right that the peace plan is directed not really at Ukraine, but at the outside world, particularly Africa as well, yes. as well as Europe, because the African Union is, is talking about coming up with their peace plan, which I don't think will look very different to a Chinese peace plan. But of course, what the Chinese are saying in the peace plan is, well, we want the fighting to stop, which means that Russia wins, that the, the Russians get to keep all of the territories that they are currently occupy 
occupy under any ceasefire, which is why the peace plan, and I think the African Union peace plan, when we see it, will be completely unacceptable to Ukraine and to the Western world and certainly the United States. So, Mike, what is China's preferred outcome then to the war? Is it, as you say, that the, the fighting stops and Russia wins if it had its way? Yes. I think the preferred outcome is that the Russians somehow are seen to be successful but not so victorious as to create a wider conflict. So, I mean, what China thought was a good idea at the beginning of this conflict was that it would be another hit against the Western world. It would be Putin pushing NATO back, showing that NATO can't just keep enlarging willy-nilly, that the United States is not a very effective power in the world. As we're reinforcing the messages that came out of Afghanistan in 2021, I thought the Chinese thought all of that was okay. But of course, the war hasn't gone that way. So it leaves them now with, well, what would they settle for? And I think they would settle for some sort of Russian success, a limited success, which diminished the West, diminished the, re the reputation of the United States, and then, as it were, promoted the idea that China was a, an alternative beacon of allegiance for the rest of the world. Is that how you see it, Dr. Leone? Uh, yes, I think... Somehow China has now found itself where, whether it likes it or not, it will need to partner up with, with Russia because it cannot partner up with the West or, and especially the US. And so China needs to make allies, needs to make friends to you know, establish a military outposts um, overseas or to get support inside international institutions. So I agree with the idea that they wouldn't want a clear-cut victory of Russia, but definitely they, would, they, they wouldn't want either a defeat of Russia because um, Russia will be their partner. Uh, Mike, these US warnings that China might supply lethal weapons to Russia, let's just contrast that with the fact that China has abstained in the UN votes condemning the invasion of Ukraine. It's sitting on the fence at the UN. Does that make these weapons supply warnings looking a bit overbaked? Well, it's certainly true that the Chinese are sitting on the fence. But the question of weapons is the dilemma they're facing. The Russians are doing so poorly in Ukraine that Chinese weapons would, would guarantee that the Russians would not lose on the ground. But equally, if they don't supply something, the Russians look as if they're in pretty poor um, straits. And so China has got a really difficult decision to make. It's not the most important decision in the world, but it is important in the context of this war. And I don't think China wants to be in this position, but if it does supply weapons, then Russia won't lose. If it doesn't supply mm. weapons, then Russia might lose. Personally, I don't think they will supply weapons. I think that their interests are such that they won't, but you can't rule that out because wars are very unpredictable things. And Dr. Leone, say China did supply weapons to Russia, how good or bad would they be? How does Chinese military tech stack up against what Ukraine has and is getting? Well, it depends on what they would supply. You know, China is, is still at a disadvantage, Chinese technologies compared to uh, Ukraine technology, to the extent that this Ukraine technology comes from the West. And China is still behind in terms of uh, military power and milita military technology. China, in many ways, looks like a great power, but in many other ways, it looks like a, a weak power. It's, it's a country of contradictions, also in, in, from this point of view. I think, nonetheless, that you know, if we look at the relationship between China and Russia, it's not anymore China buying weapons from Russia. This is increasingly a two-way street uh, relationship. And especially when it comes to drones, I think that's where China 
uh, could make the, the difference uh, in Ukraine. China sells already deadly drones to the Gulf countries, and these have been able to outcompete U.S. drones. And Michael Clark, China is currently hosting the presence of Belarus, Russian neighbour, which has helped Moscow with the Ukraine invasion. What's going on there? Do Minsk and Beijing often chat? Uh, No, not very often. I mean, China does have some investments in Belarus, but this investment is really one in the politics between Lukashenko and Putin, because I think China wants to show that it's not only dealing with Russia, it's dealing with another party to the conflict, which is Belarus, because Belarus has let its territory be used for the invasion, and Belarus is, is the closest ally to Russia. Lukashenko depends on Putin in every respect. So I think there's a sort of diplomatic completeness about this, but there really isn't very much they can talk about. They've signed lots of little MOUs in the last couple of days, and they all amount to an agreement that they will support each other in suppressing their own populations where necessary. I mean, you know, both, both of them just have an interest in, in cracking down on their own citizens. It doesn't add, add anything strategically to the picture. Authoritarians unite, eh? Mike Clark, stay with us. Dr. Zeno Leone, thank you very much for your time. Now, a few days ago, in the space of one hour, two rather different groups of typhoon jets flew into IF Coningsby from the Middle East. The second group were from the Saudi Air Force. We'll talk about them in a bit. But the first were RAF Typhoons and their pilots from 12 Squadron coming home after five months in Qatar, where their duties included helping keep the World Cup safe and secure. James Hurst was there for the homecoming and spoke to two of the pilots, Squadron Leader Chris Wright and First Flight Lieutenant Peter James. Welcome home, first of all. How is it to be back after five months in Qatar? Very good, yeah. It was a bit of a, bit of a dream. Yeah, I've been looking forward to it for quite a long time to uh, come back and be reunited with the family. That looked like quite an emotional little, little reunion there. <laughs> yeah, just kind of, uh, not fight back the tears, but it was uh, almost there. <laughs> I mean, the obvious answer is uh, it feels a little chilly, but it's been um, a phenomenal journey. Uh, but it's great to be back, as always, to hear the English tones on air traffic control and to get back to our home base is always very special. The most attention for the deployment was helping your Qatari colleagues secure the World Cup. What was that like? The whole idea was for us to just support the Qataris in in doing the World Cup. Uh, It was an excellent experience. Not the most exciting flying, but knowing that you're making a contribution is is worthwhile. Was there any any moment that you thought, oh, something's going on here? Uh, no, No, I don't think there was, but that's the best scenario, that actually nothing happens. We are armed and we are ready in the air for any kind of unforeseen circumstance, but more importantly, we're a visible sign to secure what was an amazing event. It's quite an event to be flying over, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you don't really think about the glamour of the event more than just dealing with the air security that's that's going on. But I think people are still very interested to know what the scores were when they got back down on the ground. It was certainly a unique perspective. Uh, We tried our best to help with some of the the VAR replays, but uh, (laughs) we were just a little bit too far stood up. I think we could have offered a unique perspective, though. What a place to watch some of the games from. Were you actually flying over the stadium at all? We were very close. We were close. We were where it makes tactical sense to be. Uh, We were nearby, but you could certainly see the uh, the amazing skyline that is Doha and all of the stadia, funny enough, pop out. They, they pop out really well because most of the games were in the dark, so really easy to see what everything was going on beneath. With a little tinge of jealousy, but obviously, like I say, a unique view. But this was just one month of your what five months there. This is part of a, a bigger operation to get the Qatari's own Typhoon Squadron 
up and running and, and operating for themselves. Yeah, and that was the climax of the last sort of three, three and a half years effort that's gone on here, primarily here at RAF Coningsby, but also periodically out in Qatar as well, to really just give the Qatar Amiri Air Force and its fighter group, and specifically its Typhoon Wing, a bit of a running start. And um, what a way to prove it. Day one of the World Cup, the first jets airborne were two Qatari Typhoons, with two Qatari pilots in, that were trained on these jets right here at RAF Coningsby by the Royal Air Force, and uh, ultimately by their own uh, sort of instructors as well as we've brought them on. And that really was the climax to that whole, to that whole programme. And you've had a few further weeks with them since the end of the World Cup. What's that involved? Well, that's kind of resetting to the original mission of Project Thariat, which was the overall deployment. Uh, what we were able to do in January after Christmas and after, frankly, Qatar had had a bit of a break after, after the very successful World Cup, was really reset to that bigger training with their other fighter forces, with their other military arms. And then to really finish it off in a really nice way, we watched half of the Qataris set off to Saudi on their first exercise on their own. And then we took the rest of the Qataris with us off to exercise Magic Carpet in Oman, uh, where we exercise our regular bilateral exercise with the Omani Air Force. Are the Qataris ready to operate a Typhoon Wing without you alongside them now? I'm clearly biased. That was my mission. But what I can say is, like I say, they've had a very successful exercise in, in Saudi, which they've just uh, returned from. And uh, everything I see in here is that they're up and running. Uh, they've still got a way to go in terms of growth, delivery of aeroplanes and other assets as they go. Um, but they're very much in, in, in the right place as far as we can tell. And that's what my, my opposite number in the Qatar Air Force tells me. The officer commanding 12 Squadron, Squadron Leader Chris Wright, and you also heard Flight Lieutenant Peter James. Uh, Michael Clark, Chris Wright there, talking about not only flying over Qatar, but an exercise in Oman. And I mentioned earlier, Saudi typhoons also touched down at Coningsby. That's for exercise Cobra Warrior, along with India, Finland and Belgium. The RAF has a lot of connections in the Middle East that we don't hear shouted about so much. What is the interest for the UK, given Qatar and Saudi Arabia, are diplomatically tricky on things like human rights. Yeah, it's, it's what George Robertson, uh, when he was Defence Secretary, used to call defence diplomacy. I mean, he created a phrase for it. It's been going on for years, of course. And the point is that professionals, military professionals, they get together, they know each other, they respect each other's professionalism, and it really matters. And you see that a lot in the Air Force because there's, with the flight crew, it's such a high level of, of expertise required that these people really do get on pretty well. You know, I used to know the, the senior official in Qatar, in the Foreign Ministry, who briefly became Foreign Minister for a while, and he used to tell me what great fun he had at RAF Valley years ago as a young pilot. And he was very pro-British because of his experiences with the, with the RAF. So this goes on all the time. And 12 Squadron, I have to say, has been a great success, great success. A joint british Qatari squadron. That hasn't happened since the Second World War, you know, a joint, a joint nationality squadron since the Second World War. And I think it's a model for all sorts of other things that uh, the RAF could do, particularly when other countries are prepared to put some money into it, since yeah. we've only got now really got... F- seven effectively fast jet squadrons um, some more joint squadrons will be a very good idea both both operationally and diplomatically yeah but also are these relations strongly driven by selling british built planes for example 
They are. They don't have to be. I mean, this one was based on the Typhoon, which is obviously a good business for us. In principle, they could be based on other aircraft as well, as long as you could service them uh, properly. I mean, apart from the Typhoon, there's the F-35, which is becoming a pretty universal aircraft in the West now. Joint F-35 squadrons for the future might make perfect sense because they would be very attractive to some of our allied partners and, and new partner countries that we want to develop relations with. Now, Mike, you said on this programme a year ago, everyone would breathe a big sigh of relief if the World Cup went off without any security incidents, and it did. Good fortune, good deterrence, or, or a bit of both, do you think? Yeah, I think there's a lot of different elements in it. You're absolutely right. There was a great sigh of relief. There were some issues, but nothing important. I mean, we all said at the time, if they can get to the point where the football begins, then the football will take over, which it did. It's you know, then it's all about the football and the diff- and the VAR system and so on. That's that's what becomes controversial. The, 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 what the Qataris should learn from this, though, is and they've done themselves a lot of good. But it's another lesson as well, because just as the Qataris were ready to reap the the diplomatic benefits of a successful World Cup, the um, crisis arose in the European Parliament of allegations of Qatari bribery of European uh, parliamentary um, politicians and leaders. And what's interesting about that is that all of the individuals who were accused have denied it fiercely, and the Qataris have denied it. But in all of the commentary over the last couple of months, everybody assumes that Qatar must be guilty. You know, the lesson in a way is that you can build up all of the the good relations that you get around the World Cup and you can lose it all over a a set of bribery scandals that have been years in the making. And it sort of proves that, you know, the bad things that states do, and I don't know if Qatar is guilty of this, but everyone assumes it is, but the bad things a state might do get round the world faster and further than any of the good things they might do. And I think there's a real object lesson there that if... You know, if countries do go in for systemic bribery, if they do, and I don't know if Qatar has, but if they do, then it will come back to haunt them at some time, just as they don't want it to. Professor Michael Clark, thank you. And my thanks to all of our guests. That's all for now. We'll be back with another SITREP next Thursday. And if you want to listen online, you can now find us on the Forces News YouTube channel, as well as our home at bfbs.com slash SITREP, or wherever you download your podcasts. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.